the Arthropod. In five, four, three, two, one. Welcome back, everybody, to Arthropod, your entomology podcast. Well, today, you're entomology plant podcast uh, i'm one of your hosts for the day jonathan larson of the university of kentucky i'm another one of your hosts jody green from the university of nebraska lincoln and i'm the last host today or i guess the first host however i'm reading the script uh, i'm michael scavarla from penn state university you are the scripter in chief of today uh you talking about more on the carnivorous plants last episode yeah. we did a deep dive uh some taxonomy uh some setup and today, Mike is going to lead us back into his garden to show us even more about these carnivorous plants. Yeah, we're going to round out the discussion about like what the different groups of carnivorous plants are, because there's still, even though I talked for like an hour last time, uh, there's still a bunch of, uh, of, of groups we haven't discussed, including some trap types that we haven't discussed, like bladder traps and uh, lobster pot traps. And so we're going to hit those today. So yeah, without further ado, let's get into it. And as always, if you guys have questions, comments, feel free to jump in and we'll go from there. So last episode, we discussed what traits make a plant carnivorous, the environmental factors that can push plants to carnivory and talk through a number of different carnivorous groups, including bromeliads, sundews, and Venus flytraps. Today, we'll finish off the remaining groups of carnivorous plants. The next major group that contains carnivorous plants is the order Ariacales, which includes familiar plants such as azaleas and rhododendrons, blueberries, persimmon, and tea plants. The two families of carnivorous plants within Ariacales, Rorodulaceae and Saracenaceae, are in the same clade, but the group also contains the non-carnivorous family Actinidaceae. So it's not clear if carnivory evolved once and was lost or evolved twice. The two families have very different traps. Saracenaceae are pitcher plants, while Rorodulaceae are sticky trap plants. So my guess is that carnivory evolves twice, but it's, you know, hard to tell. Let's start with Rorodulaceae since we just talked about a number of sticky trap plants in the last episode. The family contains one genus, Rorodula, with just two species. Both species are evergreen shrubs that grow up to six feet tall and are native to South Africa. The leaves are lance-shaped, similar to dewy pines and king sundews, and the trunks are thin and don't branch frequently, so mature plants have a rather scraggly appearance. Both species grow in nutrient-poor rocky soils that experience hot summer droughts. There are often similarly-sized competitor plants, and the seeds require open ground to germinate, so they are dependent upon cyclical wildfires every few years that clear out competing plants. Besides the size of Rorigula, which are larger than most other carnivorous plants, the most interesting aspect of their biology is the close relationship they've developed with true bugs in the genus Pameridia. Unlike other flypaper carnivorous plants, Rorigula do not produce digestive enzymes. Instead, the bugs form a mutualistic relationship with the plants as they are able to navigate amongst the sticky stalks of the leaves and feed upon captured insects. The Pameridia bugs then defecate a nutrient-rich waste onto the Roridula leaves, which the plants can efficiently absorb. The bugs have only ever been found on Roridula, so the mutualistic relationship appears to be quite strong and necessary for both species. Other arthropods that have been associated with Roridula include an unidentified assassin bug that occurred on 60% of the plants in one population, and a few species of spiders, including the crab spider, Cinamia marlothi, which is only known to occur on Roridula foliage. 
Cinamia crab spiders do not defecate directly onto the leaves, but feed on pomeridia bugs that get too close to the web, as well as other insects that are trapped on the leaves. So the spider's relationship with Warridula is less clear. They may parasitically feed on trapped insects without contributing to the nutritional intake of the plant, but may help regulate the population of pomeridia bugs so that they don't overpopulate the plants. This is why when people say speculative evolution, like speculative biology, like, oh, it's like, oh, that could never happen. That's too far out there. Like what you just described is pretty bonkers. Like that's a sci-fi story right there. Your whole world is a plant. Uh, you rely on a spider to keep your favorite bug in line. Uh, th there's just so much at play there. That's a fascinating story all wrapped up in one plant. I love it. And it gets into kind of an area that I don't really touch on in the script, but we talked about it a little bit where there's this grade of carnivory. Some plants are thought to be proto-carnivorous because they don't secrete digestive enzymes. And so some people don't consider Rorigula carnivorous. They trap bugs, but they're not digesting them themselves. And to me, it's like, well, yeah, they don't have to. These bugs are doing it. They're still trapping bugs for their own nutritional uptake. They just have co-opted an insect to do the digesting for them because it's more efficient. Like that to me doesn't mean that they're not carnivorous. So people just can't stand to see a, a plant succeed, apparently. <laughs> I think they're really cool. And the fact that they're like six feet tall is really neat. Like little shrubby trees, I think is really cool. I looked up the Pamiridia bug because I was like, I was interested in, in what it was. And the like the species name is Pamiridia rorigule. I can't even originally, <laughs> but it's named after the plant because it only lives on that plant. So yep. it's just so cool. Well, that's the other thing. It's such a tight relationship. Like these bugs don't exist anywhere else, but the plant. So I include them here. I think they're carnivorous. I would consider them within that group. Do you have one of these? I don't, uh, you can grow them though. So I've thought about it. Having a six foot tall, sticky leaved plant, though, seems like it's going to get on everything. Like, I'm just going to get sticky leaves, like touching everything. You're going to have your kids stuck in that if you're not careful. <laughs> uh, I, as long as I don't have the bugs to eat and digest them, it's probably fine. Carry on. Rorigula are only found in South Africa and are not geographically close to any living relatives. Actinidaceae. The non-carnivorous sister group to Rorigula are found in Eastern Asia and Central and South America, while Saracenaceae, which are sister to both groups, are found in North America and Northern South America. Fossil Rorigula leaves have been found in European Baltic amber from the Eocene, so the group must have had a much wider geographic distribution in the past. So the two living Rorigula species are paleoendemics, the last vestiges of a once widespread group. Like other paleoendemic carnivores, such as the king sundew, Rorigula are at risk because they have highly fragmented populations. Rorigula dentata is known from fewer than 10 populations, which each only contain a few individual plants, while Rorigula gorgonius is known from around 20 populations with a maximum of 2,000 individuals per population. The populations naturally fluctuate in response to wildfires, so it is difficult to assess population health. Still, additional historic populations that are known based on herbarium samples are no longer extant, so overall both species have gone into decline recently. The suppression of wildfires and habitat destruction combined with fragmented populations puts both species at risk in the wild. 
Saracenaceae, the next group we'll talk about, contains three genera of pitcher plants, all of which are found in North and South America. Darlingtonia californica, the monotypic cobra lily, which only occurs in Northern California and Oregon. Heliamphora, which are commonly called sun pitchers and are endemic to Northern South America. And Saracenia, the American pitcher plants, which are found in Eastern North America. Unlike Nepenthes and Cephalotus pitcher plants, which modify only a portion of the leaves to form a pitcher, Western hemisphere pitcher plants curl the entire leaf to make the tubular pitcher-shaped traps. Most species form upright, often tall pitchers that can reach up to three or four feet in height, while two make decumbent pitchers that lie close to the ground. Within Saracenaceae, Darlingtonia, the cobra lilies, are phylogenetically sister to the Heliamphora saracenia clade, this relationship has been strongly supported in many DNA-based studies, but was somewhat surprising initially as morphological analyses found Saracenia or Heliamphora to be sister to Darlingtonia plus the remaining genus. Unfortunately, there are no credible fossils of Western Hemisphere pitcher plants, so directly dating their evolution is not yet possible. However, when fossils outside of Saracenaceae but closely related to them, including the Baltic Amber or Regulaceae fossils, are used to calibrate the phylogenetic tree, it's estimated that Saracenaceae diverged somewhere around 84 to 88 million years ago. Darlingtonia diverged from other Western Hemisphere pitcher plants 25 to 44 million years ago. And the Heliamphora and Saracenia genera diverged from each other only 14 to 32 million years ago. So relatively recent in geological time. We'll start with Darlingtonia since they lie outside of the Heliamphora Saracenia clade. Cobra lilies are herbaceous, mostly green perennial plants that grow in compact rosettes of up to 14 individual leaves. The leaves of mature plants have the most complex structure of Western Hemisphere pitcher plants. They grow up to three feet tall, are hollow, and topped with a large bulbous domed structure that overhangs the rest of the pitcher. This bulbous structure has many clear windows or fenestra that allow light to shine through into the structure. A circular opening exists on the bottom side of this bulbous overhanging structure in a red fishtail-shaped appendage, which is covered in sweet-smelling nectar glands, occurs at the front of the opening. In large colonies, this sweet nectar can be smelled by people from up to several meters away, so it is likely attractive to insects for quite a distance. So the traps work like this. Insects are attracted to the nectar glands, and the fishtail appendage in the pitcher partially block their view. But the opening in the bottom of the bulbous dome is directly above the nectar glands and is brightly lit by the light coming through the fenestra. Insects then fly upward into the trap opening and try to escape through these light windows. The prey bang and bang into these fenestra until they are eventually overcome with exhaustion and fall into the pitcher part of the leaf, where they are prevented from escaping by downward facing hairs. Cobra lilies are found mostly in a small area of coastal northwestern California in adjacent Oregon with smaller scattered populations found in the mountains of central California. They grow in seepage slopes that overlie serpentine-derived ultramafic soils that are nutrient deficient but high in heavy metals. The plants don't accumulate the heavy metals so appear to tolerate them because there is less competition in such areas for other plants than requiring heavy metals to grow in such soils. Cobra lilies are also found in open, boggy clearings, marshy mountain meadows, and spring-fed depressions, as well as stream and lake edges. The abundance of water in these habitats keeps competing plants, including trees, to a minimum. Mature cobra lilies produce stolen runners, 
which spread up to three feet from the parent plant and develop into new plants, so they can colonize an area and establish large colonies relatively quickly. Even in heavily shaded areas of low light, which precludes flowering as in other carnivorous plants, cobra lilies can spread so quickly via these stolons that they dominate the landscape and outcompete other vegetation. In the right habitats, nearly monoculture colonies of cobra lilies can grow up to 30 meters in diameter. Besides clonal reproduction, each cobra lily produces a single flower each spring. Despite the fact that cobra lilies produce viable seed, observations of pollinators visiting the flowers were limited and it was unclear for many years how pollen transfer happened. It was even suggested that spiders that colonize the plants may be the main pollinators. However, in 2006, it was finally shown that the black-haired mining bee, Andrena nagrahirta, visits the flowers early in the morning and was just missed by earlier observers because it was out so early. <laughs> The early bee gets the pollen. We've been looking at these things for a hundred years and just right. nobody got up early right. to, to look at them. Nobody was like, ah, oh, geez, 8 a.m. Come on. Have you described what they look like? Cause they are so cool looking. I tried yeah, to, pretty. and it's difficult They're If you can't picture it based on what I, you know, a couple paragraphs up. Uh, yeah. Google them real quick. Cause they look really neat. The fishtail appendage is uh, something else. Like they do look like. Cobras, like I like that name for that lily. They are. We have a Christmas idea for Jody. They are sometimes called like California pitcher plants, and there's a couple other common names. But cobra lily, I think, is just so evocative oh. um, that I, I love it. Cobra lilies have a diverse set of inquilines that live within the pitchers that are so efficient in breaking down trapped prey that the plants do not produce digestive enzymes. The largest and most common of the inquilines are larvae of Metronemus edwardsi, a species of non-biting midge. These larvae possess strong mandibles, which are able to chew on dead prey, which begins to disarticulate them. Another extremely common and abundant inquiline are Sariaciniopus darlingtonii, a species of slime mite. The mites are much smaller than the midge larvae, so either feed on the soft intersegmental membranes of newly caught prey or get into the body cavity of prey once it is disarticulated. Both species are so common that a number of studies into their competition and coexistence have been done. Additionally, there are other species, including various scuttleflies, a plethora of different mite species, protozoa, and bacteria that form multiple trophic levels within the pitcher, each of which feeds on and breaks down the trapped insects and or feeds on and breaks down the waste of arthropods from higher trophic levels. One study recorded 21 different species associated with Darlingtonia and found high levels of heterogeneity between cobra lily populations, with some inquilines being found in nearly 70% of pitchers in one population, but being totally absent from pitchers just three kilometers away. Darlingtonia are one of the more difficult carnivorous plants to grow in cultivation. They like warm to hot summers and exposed sun, but because they grow in areas of near constant flowing water, they need to have cool roots. And this combination of cool roots, but hot air is really difficult to achieve in cultivation. Some growers set up pumps to constantly circulate water through pots while others place ice cubes on the top of substrate to keep the roots cool. The plants also need a few months of winter dormancy when temperatures are cooler, around 50 to 60 degrees Fahrenheit, but not freezing or not too hot. This can make outdoor cultivation in many areas very difficult. While cobra lilies have a restricted range, they are surprisingly secure in the wild and large stands of plants can still be found in the correct habitats. 
The mountainside seeps they inhabit have not been affected by urban development and habitat degradation for the most part, and many parks and natural reserves exist within their range to further protect them. And while cobra lilies are available to purchase from many suppliers, these are all produced in culture from seed or stolen cuttings, and there is little to no collecting of wild plants. The next group are the sun pitchers in the genus Helianthra. The common name is a misnomer based on the mistaken assumption that heli in the genus name is derived from helios, the Greek word for sun, when it's actually derived from helos, which means marsh or meadow. Amphora here is the word for urn or pitcher, so a better common name would be marsh pitchers. But that's not very characteristic as most other pitcher plants also grow in marshes. So even though it's not derived correctly, I prefer the name sun pitcher as it's distinctive and it's also in wide usage. Sun pitchers are small perennial plants that produce three to 10 hollow leaves that grow in a rosette. These leaves are generally greens, reds, and purples, although some are so dark purple as to be nearly black. Many species are relatively short, but the largest species can grow up to 20 inches tall. The inside of the leaf pitchers are covered with downward pointing hairs, and the opening is not covered by a lid or other structure to keep out the rain. Instead, a small hole or slit is present below the pitcher rim along a seam where the left and right sides of the leaf bond together. This opening acts like the drainage hole in a sink and prevents rainwater from flooding the pitcher. While it doesn't cover the pitcher, a small lid does occur at the rear of the leaf above the pitcher. The inside of this small lid produces nectar, so it is generally called a nectar spoon. Insects are attracted to the nectar and fall into the open pitcher below when they visit the nectar spoon. Sun pitchers are found in the Guinean highlands, primarily in southern Venezuela, but also limited areas of adjacent Guiana in northern Brazil. Almost all species are restricted to tapuis, which are tall, flat-topped sandstone mountains with nearly vertical sides. Tapuis usually occur singly rather than forming an unbroken range and are surrounded by dense highland jungles, so the plants and animals that occur on each tapui are often endemic or only occur across a small range. It used to be thought that tapuis represented ecologically stable environments that have remained unchanged since the mountains were carved millions of years ago. This has driven the idea, both in fiction and in nonfiction, that, that they might be home to dinosaurs or other extinct animals that are not found anywhere else. But more recent evidence suggests that tapuis have experienced climate-driven vegetational shifts during the last ice ages, just like the rest of South America, and have only had a stable complement of vegetation for the last six to 10,000 years. So they're not paleo relics as is often perceived in popular culture. There's no dinosaurs up there. Why would you kill our dream like that? I mean, if I could get a bunch of money to helicopter up to these things to look for dinosaurs, I like I would take that excuse. Yeah. But but you're not going to find them. I'm sorry. You're good at grant writing. You could probably sell it. I, I don't. I'm not good at grant writing. <laughs> I don't enjoy writing grants very much because the hit or miss nature of the beast. I hate um, when my. This, I've taken that? us on a tangent, but you uh, have. Yeah, I mean, uh, that seems like another podcast, perhaps, <laughs> where I just complain about grant writing. Yeah, which is it's like grants 101. Don't even try, <laughs> kid. They'll break your heart. <laughs> this one has a funding rate of 5%, a 1 in 20 chance. <laughs> so so uh, you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't want to like belabor anything necessarily. Yeah. I don't, I don't, is it okay if I interrupt you for a moment? That's the point of this. Yes. Okay. <laughs> this is, it's a discussion. So when you describe these plants and everything, like, can you 
like, can you help evoke in our listeners, perhaps, like, the sense of dread that perhaps an insect would feel if it had, like, some of the photos that I've seen of insects trapped in this this stuff that's in there, like, it's viscous, right? I mean, it looks like a D&D thing. It, like, they're in a puddle, they can't really move, and they're going to die, right? Yep. So, like, what is that like? What, what happens to the insect over time? Is this something you're going to talk about more later, or... I mean, I wasn't planning on it, but yeah, like it depends on the trap type. Okay. Um, you know, you can imagine a Venus flytrap, you're a fly walking along and then all of right. a sudden, like the jaws just close around you and oh shoot, I'm trapped. Oh shoot, it's closing tighter. Right. Oh no, I can't move. Right. Oh no, that there's digestive fluid. Yeah, that um, one is, I'm like, I'm like, okay, you know, it's very, very evocative looking at you like, okay. But with the, the pitcher plant things that you've been describing, like this tube, and it's full of goo. A goo is not a scientific term necessarily. So correct me if I'm wrong, but like the insects are in this fluid and they're just, it reminds me of those D and D illustrations where it's like a gel cube that you walk into and then you, you turn to bones after a while. Right. <laughs> yeah. Gelatinous cube. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, we can't anthropomorphize arthropods too much that would fall into this trap, but like, can you help our listeners like think about that? Take them on a thought exercise by describing yeah. like the sequence of events in a pitcher in these plants that you've just described. Yeah. So, I mean, regardless of the type of pitcher plant, all of them have off, well, not all of them, but often they'll have some kind of wax or, you know, a, a slippery surface uh, in nectar to attract you. So American pitcher plants have nectar along the rim of the trap. These sun pitchers have nectar in the nectar spoon. So you're a bug and you're flying along and like there's this nectar and you've had right. nectar before, like at you're, flowers, you're it's delicious. Yeah. Like let's, let's say you're a surfing fly, you're a hover fly. You're just like buzzing along. You got your two wings. You're mimicking a bee. You smell nectar. You're like, I know nectar. That's food. So Jody yeah. is our, a hover fly. She's pretending to be a hover fly right now. She's thinking about it and you fly over to this plant. Okay. What happens next? So you land on it and then uh, some insects, they can visit the nectar and then they'll fly away. Like not every insect and even the majority of insects that visit these pitcher plants don't fall in. Um, sometimes they get their meal and they fly away. Great. Uh, but, you know, if you're walking along and then all of a sudden, oh no, this, this, this wax is thicker than I thought. My tarsi are all clogged up. I can't grip onto the plant. And then you fall in to this sticky, viscous fluid. It's, it's thicker than water sometimes. Uh, it's got a, you know, often will have like a, a higher surface tension. So the insects just kind of float on the water, but they can't get out. The downward facing hairs prevent them from climbing up. The, the powdery wax on the sides of the pitchers prevent them. Like if they do get a grip and they can get past these hairs, like they, the wax just crumbles below their feet and they fall back in. If they can even pull themselves out of like the high um, tension liquid that there is because it's, it's often got a higher surface tension than water. So it's kind of, it's not sticky, like to a human, like you wouldn't put your fingers in it and think like, Oh, this is glue, but to a small insect where even water is difficult to get out of, like it's, it's stickier than water. And so you, you have a hard time getting out, especially like you're very small. So it's um, like a biological sticky pitfall trap. Kind of, but it's not even that sticky. Mm. Um, it's just more viscous than water. Uh, but it's, it's still like Newtonian fluid. <laughs> I 
I, I probably know. Uh, I was just imagine like dumping out a bunch of pictures and then smacking it like you would a water and cornstarch mix. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, you just kind of float on the surface until you die. Uh, either drown because your spiracles get all clogged up or you just get so exhausted trying to drag yourself out of this, this liquid that, that you don't have any energy left. Um, I think with Darling Tony of the Cobra Lilies, the fact that they have these fenestra in the, you know, they're often catching small things like mosquitoes and midges. Uh, and they just like, they use exhaustion to their advantage. They just bang, like these insects just bang and bang and bang and fly until they have no energy left. Like thinking like, I'm going to escape this time. Nope. I'm going to escape this time. Nope. And they just can't do it. And they're just so, I'm so tired. And they just fall into the picture and can't get out. Um, Okay. So then what happens after they, yeah. And what happens after they surrender? They die. And then uh, it it depends on the the pitcher plant. Um, Northern pitcher plants that we'll talk about in a moment. uh, The Darlingtonia. They have mutualists in them that will chomp on you and pull your dead body apart and disarticulate you. Uh, others, most of the Saracenia, uh, and I, I guess Heliampra, they don't have they don't secrete digestive enzymes either, um, and they rely on mutualists. Um, so insects or bacteria will just eat at your body until you fall apart. Uh, in species like Saracenia or most Saracenia that secrete digestive enzymes like the plant just digests you after you're dead um like you would in in a person's stomach it sounds like the insect world's version of quicksand except something that's probably more likely to happen to them than us falling into quicksand like we were always afraid of as children quicksand is surprisingly uh based on my, my childhood television watching not been nearly as an important uh aspect of my adult life as i thought it right. would be yeah you thought you were going to be ducking it all the time but for insects it sounds like maybe this is a little more common than that it just it sounds almost diabolical the way you described it uh our jody green hoverfly was tricked by nectar and then struggled to exhaustion and was digested by a plant i mean so easily tr- tricked and attracted <laughs> to sweet s- stickies smelling curious to what's happened oh these backwards hairs i cannot get out alas i suffered (laughs) that was almost the shakespearean play that you just wrote right there if anybody wants to write a shakespearean type play based on the insect's point of view visiting carnivorous plants i would love to hear it just imagine like a gothic poem of of an insect giving up, like it's, it's synapses firing for the last time at the base of a pitcher plant. If any of our listeners write something (laughs) like that, we will read it and make a special episode just for you. It's true. It's true. All right. I've interrupted enough. Take us back (laughs) into the world of carnivorous plants. Similar to Nepenthes. This restriction to high elevation mountains and high levels of endemicity has driven the speciation of Heliamphora, and 23 species are currently recognized. Some species have high levels of intraspecies variation, so more species may be recognized if these are broken up. But there have been few genetic studies on the group, so some currently recognized species may eventually be lumped into morphologically variable species as well. This is further complicated by the fact that many species readily hybridize in the wild where they occur, and in some areas, the hybrids are the most abundant specimens and even form complicated back crosses with parent species. Uh, 
The highlands where the tapuis occur are remote and difficult to reach, and the tapuis themselves usually require helicopters to reach the top, so the area is underexplored. New heliamphora species are likely undiscovered or hybrid relationships clarified as more field work is done in the region. So there are currently 23 species known, but that number may change drastically as species are lumped or split, hybrids are figured out, and new species are discovered. Most sun pitchers occur on the summits of the Tapuis around 1,800 meters in elevation, and most species are endemic to one or two mountains. Some species occur at lower elevations on the flanks of the mountain or in the foothills, while just a few occur in the lowland swamps and marshy clearings of the highland jungle that surround the Tapuis, with just one species being endemic to these highland swamps. In these high elevation environments, competing plants are often small or non-existent, so most sun pitchers do best in 0 to 20% shade. When shade is increased, the plants grow taller, greener leaves, and when grown in a lot of shade, they produce green, nearly flat, non-carnivorous leaves that don't act as pitchers in order to increase photosynthesis. There have been few studies on the insects captured by wild heliamphora, but one published in 1992 that found that each pitcher caught between 5 and 41 prey items, with ants representing the majority of prey. However, smaller numbers of bees, wasps, moths and butterflies, beetles, various flies, grasshoppers, and even stoneflies were also caught. Some of these are likely incidental, but most were probably attracted by the nectar spoons. Similarly, there have been few studies on the anquilines associated with wild heliamphora. The most common and abundant are Metronemis midge larvae and the larvae of a couple Wyomia mosquito species. While Metronemis and Wyomia are inquilines and Saracenia, and Metronemis is also known from Darlingtonia, so these are not surprising groups to also find in sun pitchers. Only one species of sun pitcher is known to produce digestive enzymes, so the inquilines are nevertheless important for the plants in terms of breaking down and digesting captured prey. The most interesting organism associated with heliamphora is perhaps the carnivorous aquatic bladderwort Utricularia humboldtii, which often grows inside the heliamphora pitchers and traps the midge and mosquito larvae that break down the trapped prey for the sun pitchers. So this bladderwort carnivorous plant is acting as a kleptoparasite in the heliamphora carnivorous plant. Sun pitchers are often considered difficult to grow, but it's mostly because they can be hard to hit their requirements of high light, temperatures of 45 degrees at night and 75 degrees Fahrenheit during the day, and abundant but not standing water. They do not thrive indoors in most climates, but the advent of easily accessible grow lights and the small stature of many species makes it so that they can be grown indoors in terraria under artificial lights relatively easily, and so are much more commonly available now than even 20 years ago. Because sun pitchers are restricted to remote habitats that are often only accessible via helicopter, they're considered stable in the wild and are not at risk, even though some species are only known from single populations that contain a limited number of individual plants. The last of the Western Hemisphere pitcher plants are the American pitcher plants in the genus Saracenia. After Venus flytraps, Saracenia pitcher plants are perhaps the most widely known carnivorous plants due to their relatively large size, colorful pitchers, and often easy cultivation. American pitcher plants are tubular in shape, but somewhat varied beyond that. Some species are tall and can grow up to three or four feet in height, while others are short and squat or grow decumbently along the ground. Most have a lid that covers the open mouth of the pitcher to prevent rainwater from flooding it, but others have an upturned lid that allows rain to enter the trap or have a bulbous top with a small opening rather like a cobra lily. Colors vary from greens and yellows to reds and dark purple. 
Saracenia leucophilia has striking pictures that have bright white tops that sometimes have red veins. All species grow for underground rhizomes, but some grow in rosettes and form clumps, while others produce creeping rhizomes that produce more dispersed plants over a larger area. Saracenia are native to eastern North America. Most species are restricted to the southeastern United States, but Saracenia purpurea, the purple or northern pitcher plant, ranges north into eastern Canada and then west across Canada almost into Alaska. They are typically found in marshes and bogs, wet pine forests with open canopies and along stream sides. The habitat is permanently moist or wet, at least in the subsurface, although only the parrot pitcher plant is known to be tolerant of total inundation and regularly captures aquatic animals. The substrate is generally acidic and low in nutrients to the point that Saracenia are intolerant of soil nutrients and die when too many nutrients are available. American pitcher plants prefer areas of high light but can tolerate partial shade better than many other carnivorous plants. In areas where they are shaded out by competing plants, Saracenia will produce smaller greener pitchers but can persist for years or even decades until a wildfire, tree fall, or other event clears away the competing vegetation. So in your garden, if you're growing these, you personally, like, do you provide that shade in some fashion or? No, they're out in the bright light. Okay. So yeah, yeah. They're in the middle of my garden, which is unshaded uh, literally all day. Okay. I was just curious if you were trying to like manipulate them, but it sounds like you want them to live their fullest life. Yeah. They grow best under bright light, but can tolerate shade. So they're easier to grow outdoors for many people. Like if you've got a big tree in your yard that partially shades it some of the, some of the day. I gotcha. There are currently eight to 11 species of Saracenia recognized depending on the author. Part of the confusion is due to the fact that all species are interfertile and readily produce hybrids, even in the wild. Hybridization is usually stopped by prezygotic barriers, mostly differences in flowering time, but in almost every case where species naturally overlap, hybrids of these species are known. While hybrids of most crosses are relatively rare in the wild, in some cases they are extremely abundant locally and even produce complex back crosses with one or both parent species. Another issue is that some species groups are morphologically very similar. For example, the northern pitcher plant, Saracenia purpurea, is a distinctive species that has short, squat, purple pitchers with wavy, upturned lids. It was thought to consist of two subspecies, one in the south and one in the north, that didn't overlap in range, with a number of varieties in each subspecies. However, in 1999, one of those varieties that has distinctive pink-petaled flowers was raised to its own species, Saracenia rosea. Another variety, Saracenia purpurea venosa variety Montana, which occurs in an isolated area of North Carolina away from other purple pitcher plants, has been shown to be a distinct lineage that should probably be raised to its own distinct species based on DNA work. Other potentially problematic species include Saracenia alata and Saracenia flava, which includes six and seven varieties respectively, and Saracenia rubra, which includes six subspecies. The inquilines associated with American pitcher plants have been extensively studied. While the natural history of pitcher plant inquilines has been investigated, one study in North Carolina recorded arthropods from 115 families in 14 orders in the pitchers of northern pitcher plants. They are often studied because they represent readily accessible microenvironments in which various ecological theories can be tested. Saracenia purpurea in particular has received a lot of attention due to its large complement of inquilines compared to other species in extensive range. You can be somebody in Canada studying pitcher plants and you've only got Saracenia purpurea to pick from. 
Pitcher plant mosquitoes, Wyomia smithi, which are totally dependent upon northern pitcher plants as larval habitat and are the top predator in this environment, are likely the most well-studied inquiline of any pitcher plant species. The larvae overwinter in the pitchers, which do not die off during the winter as in other pitcher plant species, and can survive being frozen completely. The adult mosquitoes do not blood feed in northern areas and can be induced to lay eggs in plain water rather than pitchers, so they are easy to rear in the lab and it's possible to store larvae for months in arrested development in a cold refrigerator in order to manipulate colony dynamics and synchronize adult emergence for experiments. A variety of other species are only known in association with pitcher plants and not other habitats. For instance, the aphid Microsiphum genii is only known from purple pitcher plants in Manitoba, and the alderfly Cialis japa occurs in purple pitcher plants in British Columbia. Larval flesh flies in the genus Fletcheria maya, which includes eight species, develop in different Saracenia species, but the phylogenetic relationships between the flies and their hosts wasn't clear. The recent master's work of Peter Kahn at East Carolina University found that some Fletchery Maya are host-specific and only colonize a single species of Saracenia, while others are more generalist and will colonize multiple species, and that while the flies have co-evolved with the plants, they have also host-switched between multiple Saracenia species lineages. Due to their often large size, variety of colors, different pitcher forms, and propensity to hybridize and ease of cultivation, Saracenia are extremely popular amongst horticulturalists. There are dozens of named cultivars, and most species are easily obtainable in the horticultural trade. Even the endangered species can be found from specialty sellers that have the proper CITES permits. Because of their size, most species are best suited for outdoor bog gardens. They need to be kept in wet but not drippingly wet substrates, so are generally kept in containers in water baths with a few inches of water in the bottom. The lack of nutrients in the substrate means that they need to be grown in living sphagnum moss, sphagnum peat, or coconut core cut with sand or perlite. Because they grow in temperate environments, American pitcher plants need a period of dormancy during the winter. Plants that are grown outside, but in areas colder than where most pitcher plants naturally occur, such as where I live in Pennsylvania, can be kept outdoors during the winter, but protected with four inches of pine straw and covered with snow for insulation. Despite being relatively widespread and popular in the horticulture trade, American pitcher plants are at risk in the wild primarily due to habitat destruction. Bogs and swamps have been extensively drained for agriculture and only around 1% of historic Saracenia habitat remains. Other factors that put all Saracenia at risk include the suppression of wildfires, which help eliminate competing plants, and the increased use of fertilizer, which increases nutrient levels to the point that Saracenia can't persist. There That's are- crazy that, like fertilizer runoff you know we think about it in terms of all these other effects that it can have on the environment but just the idea that like oh normally that would be okay for plants uh but in this instance it's pretty drastically bad because they've evolved all these other mechanisms to get those nutrients uh that's an unintended consequence of fertilizer runoff that i had not previously considered yeah, they're just so intolerant of fertilizer. Like even if you have a relatively pristine swamp, if it's too close to an ag field and gets nitrogen runoff, it'll kill all your Saracenia, which is like there's habitat there, but but you're still destroying it. It's just like uh, most things out there are like, oh, yeah, nitrogen. Give me that, give me that nitrogen. And these are like, man, mm, nah, I'll get it somewhere else. And there are a few issues that are specific to individual pitcher plant species. For instance, Saracenia leucophilia, the white pitcher plant, 
is one of the largest and showiest species, so is commercially harvested and poached for cut flower arrangements. Population viability is so low that three species or subspecies are listed as endangered in, in CITES Appendix 1, and all of the remaining species are listed as potentially threatened in CITES Appendix 2. The one bright spot is that in some areas, power line cuts provide habitat that is semi-regularly cut and maintained, so at least some species may be able to hang on into the future into the wild. Now we move into Lamiales, the last family in which carnivory has evolved. Lamiales is one of the largest plant families with more than 23,000 described species, including familiar groups such as mint, basil, and rosemary, sesame, lilac, lavender, and olive. Carnivory arose independently within this order at least three times. Many species within Lamiales are covered in dense, sticky trichomes, and some we're not discussing are considered protocarnivorous. That is, they trap insects but are not capable of digesting and absorbing the nutrients from them, so it's thought that the abundance of sticky hairs in this group may predispose them towards carnivory. The first group we'll discuss are the rainbow plants, which is another monotypic family, Biblidaceae, that contains a single genus, Biblis, in eight species. Rainbow plants have flypaper traps and are superficially similar in appearance to the sundews and dewy pines, even though they are not closely related. The leaves are long and tapering and are covered in sticky mucilaginous glands that trap insects, as well as sessile glands that secrete digestive fluids. Unlike sundews, rainbow plants can't move their leaves or stocked glands in response to prey, so they are considered passive flypaper traps. The genus name is in honor of the Greek goddess Biblis, who fell in love with her brother and, when he rejected her advances, cried so much that she transformed into an eternal fountain of tears. So if you combine the English name of rainbow plant with the genus name, maybe you can picture the plants as covered with rows of brilliantly reflective glistening droplets that resemble tears. Rainbow plants are divided into two species groups, one of which contains annual plants that usually grow to heights of 6 to 18 inches, although one large species can reach up to 24 inches in height, and a second group of two larger perennial species that generally grow between 18 and 40 inches in height. Biblis are restricted to Australia and New Guinea. The two perennial species occur in southwestern Australia around Perth, and the annual species occur in northern Australia with one widespread species reaching New Guinea. The annual species are annual because they have to grow and reproduce before they are killed by the annual dry season. So seeds sprout in as little as four days and plants reach maturity in three to four months. Most individuals are killed when the annual droughts come, but plants in exceptional areas that stay wet may persist for more than a year or two. The perennial species can survive for years or perhaps even decades as it's not clear how long lived they might be. Rainbow plants grow in highly leached acidic substrates, mostly composed of sandy clays or peaty soils, and require moist to wet substrate, at least seasonally when they are growing. Biblis are also dependent upon cyclical wildfires. Like many carnivorous plants, rainbow plants require strong light and little to no shade to grow well, so are shaded out when competing plants grow too dense. When this happens to annual biblis, they lie dormant as seeds and can persist for at least years and perhaps decades until a fire clears away the surrounding vegetation and the population can grow once again. The perennial species also depend on fire, but rather than die back completely, they can either withstand low intensity fires and grow back from the stem, or if the stem is burned and killed, grow back from an extensive root system. Similar to Roridula, 
Predatory mirrored bugs have been found on rainbow plants, feeding on captured prey and avoiding the sticky glands. However, it's not clear if they are mutualists that help digest prey, as in Rorigula, or if they are kleptoparasites that rob the plants of food, as the appropriate studies have not been carried out. The conservation status of the species varies. Annual species occur in remote, sparsely populated areas of northern Australia, so are difficult to assess. Besides perhaps collecting for seed, there is no point for horticulturalists to remove plants from the wild because they are so short-lived. And because the seeds persist for a long time in the soil, they can often regenerate quickly, even after disasters. So even though a couple of species are only known from one or a handful of populations, the annual species are generally considered to be secure. The perennial species are a different story. Neither species is widely distributed, and urban sprawl around Perth destroyed large swaths of habitat, while other historic habitat has been drained for agriculture or polluted with fertilizer runoff. The plants may not flower every year and don't produce much seed when they do, so when large old plants are targeted by poachers, it can send a population into decline and even cause it to crash. So one species, Biblis gigantea, is now only known from five small populations and is considered critically endangered by the ICUN. The next group we'll consider is the genus Phylcoxia, which have no common name. This genus contains seven rarely collected species that are all restricted to the Cerrado or Campo Rupestre ecoregions of Brazil. The first species were collected in 1966 and sent to Peter Taylor and David Philcox at the Kew Botanical Gardens in the United Kingdom, who recognized the specimens as a new genus and wrote and illustrated a full description, but then sat on the publication for 30 years without actually submitting it. Sounds extremely academic. Additional specimens were collected in 1974 and 1981 by different researchers and were recognized as something new, but weren't described because there wasn't much material available. Then, finally, in the early 1990s, the specimens that were collected in 1981 were sent to a Brazilian student, Vinicius Souza, who was working on a survey of plants in the region they were collected in, and he began to write a description of the genus. At the same time, Peter Taylor showed his draft manuscript to a colleague, which he'd been sitting on for nearly 30 years, with the intention of finally publishing it. But the colleague recognized that the plants were in the same new genus that Sousa was working on. Sousa also came across the specimens that were collected in 1974, so all of the specimens and work were brought together in one manuscript that was published in 2000, with the new genus they described being named after David Philcox, who had helped write the first description of the first specimens collected in 1974. Since 2000, an additional four species have been described, but a recent study suggested that one is actually multiple species, and the area where they occur is not well surveyed, so it is likely that there are other species to be found in the future. All Philcoxia grow as annuals or perennials in areas of deep, nearly pure, bright white quartzitic sand. So this is the kind of sand like you would imagine in a kid's playset, like white play sand. That is what they're growing in. This substrate is devoid of nutrients and often gets extremely hot and dry, so there is minimal competition from other plants. Philcoxia plants are small, just a few centimeters across, and the stems and leaves grow under the surface of the sand so that the only part that is usually exposed is the flower stalk. The underground leaves are small, just three millimeters across in the largest species, but each plant produces a number of them under the surface of the sand. So if you brush back the sand, there is a small mat of leaves present. The flower stalk is up to 20 centimeters in height, thin and branched. So if you saw the plants and didn't know any better, it might appear that someone just stuck some twigs into the ground. 
The leaves of Philcoxia are sticky, and the habitat in which they occur would seem to favor the evolution of carnivory. Indeed, corkscrew plants in the genus Genlisia, which we'll cover in a moment, are found in moist seepages in the same region. Small nematodes were observed to be stuck to the underground leaves, but an initial study failed to detect protease enzymes, which are a common class of digestive enzymes produced by carnivorous plants, so it was unclear for a number of years if Philcoxia were carnivorous or not. Then a study published in 2012 demonstrated that Philcoxia produced phosphatase and absorbed 15% of the nitrogen from radioactively labeled nematodes within 48 hours, which is as fast or faster than other carnivorous plants absorb nutrients from prey. So pretty definitive at that point that Philcoxia are indeed predatory, specifically on nematodes. Most Philcoxia species are only known from single populations that occur over tiny areas and are considered critically endangered. Philcoxia corensis, for example, only occurs in a 400 square meter patch of sand, while Philcoxia rhizomatosa occurs in a 2000 square meter patch that is surrounded by eucalyptus farms on all sides. In addition to agriculture, the area is threatened by sand mining. As far as I can tell, seeds have never been collected or grown in culture, so there are no plants available in the carnivorous plant trade and no commercial backup if wild populations are destroyed. The last family of carnivorous plants we need to discuss is Lintibularaceae, which includes three genera, Genlesia, the corkscrew plants, Pinguacula, the butterworts, and Utricularia, the bladderworts. Members of all three genera grow as small herbs. The placement of the family within Lamiales is uncertain, beyond it being in the derived crown Lamiales, so we don't know the non-carnivorous sister lineage of the group or when they diverged. Within Lintibularaceae, Multiple studies have found the butterworts, which have sticky flypaper traps, to be sister to the corkscrew plants and bladderworts, which have highly modified lobster pot and bladder traps, respectively. Two DNA-based studies estimated that Pinguacula split from Genlesia and the Utricularia clade around 39 to 42 million years ago, and that Genlesia and Utricularia then split from each other around 30 million years ago. So the groups are much younger than some of the other carnivorous plant lineages that first evolved during their Cretaceous. Let's start with the butterworts since they are the oldest group and have the most basic traps. Pinguacula are small herbaceous plants that grow as rosettes. The leaves of many species are flat and wide with a blunt or pointed tip and upturned sides. A few species have more narrow lanceolate leaves, but in general, they all have a fairly similar shape. The plants are fairly small, with most species having leaves between two and 10 centimeters in length, although some are as small as one centimeter or as large as 25 centimeters. The leaves are covered in sticky mucus, but it isn't very strong, so it's best at capturing small prey, such as fungus gnats and other small flies, or somewhat larger prey that have large wings. The leaves are capable of slow movement where they curl up and around prey to aid in retention and digestion. In addition to insect prey, butterworts are capable of digesting pollen and other plant parts that are high in protein, so they could be considered maybe more of omnivorous plants instead of strictly carnivorous all the time. Cannibal plants. The generic and English names for the plants relate to their sticky leaves. Pinguacula derives from the Latin word pinguus, which means fat or grease, and refers to the greasy feeling of the leaves. Butterwort is a bit more difficult to pin down. It either refers to the fact that the leaves were applied to the chapped udders of cows because they have antiseptic properties, 
or that they were used to curdle milk and produce a fermented buttermilk-like product. I don't like either of those, frankly. Yeah, they're pretty weird. I was I was really curious how you were going to react to chapped udders of cows. I mean, I feel bad for the cows because, you know, they're, they're chapped. I also find it curious, like, what was the sequence of events that was like, yeah, we could grind up that thing and rub it on there and it'll help. I don't even think they grind it up. I think they just slap the whole leaf on it. Interesting. There are around 100 recognized species of butterworts worldwide. The group originated in Europe, but then dispersed across Northern Asia and into North and South America, after which multiple lineages radiated into diverse species groups. Some species are extremely cold tolerant, and as a group, they have the most northern and southern distributions of any carnivorous plant, being found across the Arctic regions of the northern hemisphere and the southern tip of South America, including Tierra del Fuego and the Falkland Islands. However, despite their proclivity for colder environments, Mexico is the world hotspot for the group with at least 41 species, 37 of which are microendemics that are confined to a single valley or mountaintop. The Mediterranean and, to a lesser extent, Cuba and the southeastern United States also have a fair number of species. The genus is absent from sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, and Australia. Butterworts are divided into temperate and tropical species, with some growers recognizing an intermediate subtropical group as well. Most species alternate between carnivorous and non-carnivorous leaves. In temperate species, the non-carnivorous leaves are produced as a tight bud in the fall called a hibernacula that protect the apical bud from freezing during the winter, while tropical species produce non-carnivorous leaves during inclement seasons, such as dry seasons where they occur. The leaves can also be homophilous or heterophilous leaves, that is, their carnivorous and non-carnivorous leaves can appear similar in size or shape or different with both temperate and tropical groups having homophilus and heterophilus species. All butterworts grow more or less in open habitats with moist to saturated low nutrient substrate. Beyond that, the specific habitats can be quite diverse. Many are found in peat bogs, marshes, and seeps typical of other carnivorous plants. Some species are very tolerant of flooding and can grow inundated with water with apparently no adverse effects. Others are found predominantly on wet cliffs or rock outcroppings where water seeps out and keeps it wet. In Mexico, I even observed butterworts growing on cut stones in Mayan ruins. The conservation status of most species is unknown. Many have small ranges and have only been observed in the wild a few times, so they are difficult to assess but are likely endangered due to their small ranges. A few well-known species are threatened. Pinguacula bohemica, for example, only occurs in the Czech Republic and is known from fewer than 400 wild plants. Species in the southeastern United States are threatened by habitat destruction, similar to American pitcher plants. However, other species, such as the European common butterwort, Pinguacula vulgaris, are widespread and locally abundant, so probably secure across their range. Butterworts are widely grown amongst horticulturalists as they often flower easily and produce showy flowers that might be compared to African violets. Growing requirements vary by species. Temperate species require a winter dormant period, while tropical species may require a dry period, but many are easier to grow and propagate from seed, plantlets they produce from the ends of their leaves or next to hibernacula or leaf cuttings. They can be grown outdoors or in terrariums under grow lights or even on bathroom windowsills that are bright enough. There is also interest because some species hybridize well, so there is an incentive to grow and cross different species to produce new varieties. 
The corkscrew plants in the genus Genlisia are small herbaceous plants that grow in rosettes. The above ground photosynthetic leaves of most species are up to two centimeters in length, although a few really large species have leaves that grow up to 20 centimeters. However, the photosynthetic leaves are the kind of boring bits of Genlisia. Corkscrew plants are rootless. They lack roots entirely, but instead grow a second type of subterranean leaf that act like roots in that they anchor the plant to the substrate and absorb water and some nutrients. They're also carnivorous. The subterranean carnivorous leaves look like an inverted Y with a long stalk that descends from the photosynthetic leaves with a bulbous digestive chamber in the middle that then splits into two halves that are twisting in corkscrew shape. Because the trap leaves grow underground, they lack chlorophyll and are white. In smaller species, the trap leaves can be up to 9 centimeters in length, while in larger species, they're up to 20 centimeters. A single plant may grow a few dozen to up to 100 or more trap leaves. So at what point are you not a, you're not a plant? Like, <laughs> you're just like pretending to be a plant. Like, you have all this weirdness. I, I mean, that, that just seems so weird that, that like, oh, no, roots, gone. Uh, leaves instead. Uh, all, all leaves all the time. Yeah, all leaves all the time. Nitrogen, no, I don't want it from the ground. I want it from bugs. Like that just seems so derived. I guess I, I don't know. Like it is. Yeah. Um, when I think it, with carnivorous, I think with plants too, the leaves are much easier to modify than the roots. Um, okay. And so, what do you want to do if you trap thing? If you want to trap things underground, well, make your leaves grow down because those you can modify pretty easily. Your roots you can't do much with. Right. And if you've got leaves down there, like, well, let's just get rid of the roots. The leaves are doing what we need them to do. Right. Right. But yeah, not, it's, it's they're weird. not absorbing anything. I guess they absorb water from the soil, but mm-hmm. uh, that's just wild. I, that does lead me to one question, and I hope you haven't covered. Like, are there are there things? Are there carnivorous plants that would be like, oh yeah, earthworms? That's great. Or root root aphids, uh, things down in the ground. Like, are those potential prey items or yeah so we'll get to that with corkscrew plants um they don't get earthworms i don't think anything would trap earthworms okay um there is one nepenthes that was recently discovered i mentioned it in the last podcast in passing um they develop underground pitchers and so they're thought to act like underground pitfall traps so they're mostly catching ants and underground things they would probably catch earthworms if one wiggled into it um (laughs) The underground environment is fairly difficult to get to for a lot of plants, but corkscrew plants do. And then bladderworts, the next group, at least the terrestrial species also go there, but both of them have really small traps. So they're typically going after things like protozoans, rotifers, small nematodes. There's nothing really that traps like, aside from the one that penthes, like big underground arthropods, but, but also I imagine they would be harder to get. Um, I guess you've got worms down there, but an ants. I was just curious. Yeah, no, that's a good If question. I was going to do it, I'd have like net-like roots. I'd slurp them up towards my, you know, we're, we're already talking about crazy plants. Like I'd, I'd have root tendrils. I, I could put, put my earthworms in my hat. I mean, there's fungi that, fungi, no, slime molds that actively trap nematodes. Like they make nets and will grab nematodes and like lasso them and pull them in. So like some of these carnivorous plants, like, Aldervon to the water wheel plants, they move really quick. Venus flytraps move really quick. Like I could imagine a scenario in which like Venus flytraps start growing underground for 
for worms and other underground prey like that and move quickly to, to do it. That I can see that. So the carnivorous corkscrew leaves, the traps, they have a slit entrance along the spirals of the twist that allow small protozoans and other soil microorganisms to enter. However, the inside of the leaves are filled with inward and backward facing hairs that trap the prey and force them to move up through the corkscrew towards the split that makes the Y and then into the digestive chamber. How the traps function is still up for speculation though. For decades, it was suggested that the plants actively pump water through the traps to create a current that helps suck in prey, but this idea has fallen out of favor in the last 20 years or so. Some have suggested that the traps produce chemical attractants, while others say they don't, but that prey are tricked into entering the traps because they resemble natural soil cavities, which small microorganisms are known to seek out. Regardless of how they operate specifically, the trap leaves are only a few cells thick in most places, so are relatively cheap to produce, which is a benefit when the target prey is so small and doesn't have a lot of nutrients. Corkscrew plants are found in Sub-Saharan Africa, South America, and Central America, and Cuba. The 30 or so described species are evenly distributed between the Eastern and Western hemispheres. They grow in wet to inundated nutrient-poor habitats, with perennial species growing in permanently wet areas such as bogs and seeps and the margins of lakes and pools, while annual species grow in seasonally wet areas like floodplains, sand plains, seasonally wet swamps and bogs, and wet cliff faces. Most species can survive being submerged indefinitely, and it's likely that the traps have to be submerged to function properly. Most corkscrew plant species appear to be secure in the wild, some are widespread with abundant populations in areas that are not under threat from habitat destruction. Others have only been observed in the wild once or twice or not at all since they were collected and described, but those species are found in extremely remote areas and the lack of observations is due to their remoteness rather than population declines. A few species are represented in the horticultural trade and are usually sold as seeds as the delicate carnivorous leaves easily break when the plants are repotted. Seeds can be pretty expensive, seven to 15 US dollars for five to 10 seeds, but they grow quickly once they sprout and can reach flowering size within a few months. The last group is Eutricularia, the bladderworts. This is one of the most, if not the most diverse group of carnivorous plants with around 230 species. Similar to corkscrew plants, bladderworts are herbaceous, rootless plants with highly modified leaves. The specific growth form varies by habitat. Some fully aquatic species grow as floating stems with whorls of leaves and traps, similar to waterwheel plants, while others produce specialized trap branches that grow down into deeper water to trap prey. Some aquatic species grow along the bottom of shallow water, but produce air-filled sacs that raise them to the surface of the water when it is time to flower. Some annual species grow as rosettes of photosynthetic leaves with modified bladder traps underground, similar to corkscrew plants, while others put only a few small photosynthetic leaves but can form sizable mats of these tiny leaves. Still others are tropical species that grow large epiphytes and produce thick rhizome-like stolons up to two centimeters thick that help store nutrients. This diversity is not evenly distributed within the genus, with approximately 65% of the species being terrestrial, 25% being aquatic, and less than 10% being epiphytic. Size is highly variable, with the largest epiphytic species producing leaves that are 30 centimeters long, and the largest aquatic species reaching lengths of up to 4 meters. On the other side of the scale, the smallest bladderworts are amongst the smallest known flowering plants. Eutricularia simensi has leaves that are only 3.5 to 15 millimeters in length. 
Regardless of the growth form, all bladder warts produce bladder traps. I discussed this trap type a bit in the introduction, but in short, bladder traps consist of a hollow bladder with an opening that is covered by a door. Ions are actively pumped out of the closed trap by the plant and water follows by osmosis, which creates a partial vacuum in the trap. Each trap is covered by numerous trigger hairs, and when the triggers are moved by prey, the trap door springs open and the vacuum sucks the prey into the trap. Variations on the basic bladder trap exist, with some species having special channels and wings that help guide prey into the trap opening. Bladder warts need to be in liquid to operate, either submerged fully as in aquatic species or in wet cavities between soil particles for terrestrial and epiphytic species. Because the traps work by pumping ions and creating a vacuum, they are limited in how large they can grow before they stop functioning. So most prey items are only a few millimeters in length. Typical prey includes young mosquito larvae, amphipods and copepods, rotifers, protozoa, small oligochaete worms, and small crustaceans. Larger prey, including fish fry and small tadpoles, are sometimes caught, but are not fully engulfed by the traps. In such cases, what parts are in the trap are digested while the remaining bits dangle outside of the trap, sometimes to be sucked in and digested by an adjacent trap. Bladderworts have the most cosmopolitan distribution of any carnivorous plants and are only absent from extremely dry areas, such as the Sahara Desert, the Middle East, and Central and Western Australia, as well as the Central Plains states and Southwestern United States. Terrestrial species occur in wet, nutrient-poor, high-light environments such as bogs, seeps, the edges of lakes and streams, and wet, dripping cliffs. Some are found in seasonally wet areas such as floodplains and survive dry conditions as seed. Terrestrial species are tropical and subtropical as they are not capable of forming hibernacula like other carnivorous plants to survive cold temperatures. Aquatic species are generally free-floating and found in still water with high light, such as the edges of lakes and ponds. Species in temperate areas are able to form a turian or resting bud, which sink to the bottom of the water when winter sets in. While many aquatic species flower and produce seed, most reproduction is asexual as stems that break can grow into new separate plants. The turians, bits of broken plants and seeds are easily carried by waterfowl and other aquatic birds. So many aquatic species have large, even hemisphere-wide distributions. So we've got another case of waterfowl distribution of carnivorous plants. Despite the small size of the traps, bladder warts have a plethora of commensal organisms in their bladders. Algae, bacteria, protozoa, and rotifers are commonly found in bladders, with algae able to photosynthesize easily through the thin trap walls. Some utricularia are frequently colonized by different inquiline fauna and have reduced the trigger hairs in number and size, which suggests they may be evolving away from carnivory and towards a kind of aquarium-style rearing of these commensal plants. There have also been suggestions that food webs inside the traps may be more complicated than suspected, with protists feeding on bacteria that grow and reproduce inside the traps, which may make bladderworts a smaller but still complex version of Nepenthes and Saracenia trap food webs. Like other diverse groups, it is difficult to summarize conservation status of Tricularia. Many species are widespread and secure. Some are found in remote areas and have only been collected once or a handful of times, but are likely secured due to their remote habitats. A few have small or localized ranges that are threatened by urbanization, habitat destruction, agriculture, and other factors. So that, that's been a tour of the carnivorous plants in the different groups and the different trap types and where they grow. The one last thing I wanted to discuss before we kind of finish with any questions from you and John 
there are some ethical questions around growing carnivorous plants. So because they grow in nutrient poor environments, especially many of the terrestrial species that you can grow outdoors, the most commonly used substrate to grow them in is sphagnum peat. And the problem with sphagnum peat is that it's, it's really ethically ambiguous as it's ethically bad to use it. In most parts of the world, it's not sustainably sourced and digging it up contributes to carbon emissions as the peat, as peat is a great carbon sink. You know, these acidic environments where peat grows, the sphagnum sinks down and the peat captures this carbon. But when you dig peat up, that allows it to start to decompose. And so you release the carbon that is trapped in that peat. I've seen some arguments that Canadian peat is more sustainably sourced. The one statistic that I saw is that they've dug up less than 1% of all of their peat. And once it's dug up once, they don't go back uh, and dig it up again. So the sphagnum keeps growing and acting as a carbon sink. There are some alternatives for growing carnivorous plants, including coconut core, which is a byproduct of coconut production. Coconut core often has excessive salts, so it needs to be soaked and washed eight to 10 times before you can use it with carnivorous plants. So there's a bit of an investment on the grower side of it. It's also a lot more expensive. It's like $30 to $40 for just a small five-pound bundle of it, where peat is $8 for 30 pounds. And you have to think too, like, is it more carbon-friendly because coconuts are grown in the tropics and you've got to ship the coconut core up here. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what the carbon trade-off is. So there are outside of, you know, habitat destruction and some of these issues with carnivorous plants in the wild, there are some other associated issues with growing carnivorous plants in culture because of the kind of stuff you have to grow them in. Um, It's something I think about a lot is growing them like I'm doing ethical. I've, I've tried using coconut core. It works pretty well. Uh, I also have used peat because it's more easily accessible. I can go to, you know, Home Depot and buy 30 pounds of it. And there's 30 more sacks sitting, you know, right there. And does me buying one for my small pots really make that big of a dent in world carbon? Probably not, but I am contributing. So it's something I think about a lot. So there are issues outside of just wild habitat destruction and whatnot, even with growing them in culture. So uh, Jody, did you have any... Any questions or anything before we before we wrap this up? Well, what are your thoughts about if someone were to put them in their garden and they're not from that area? Like, are they likely to not like the ones that you're growing outside? Yeah. Is that posing any environmental damage in your ecosystem or? Because they're killing so many insects. Well, are they? Or. Uh, I mean, they certainly, you know, insects, do they have enough but... food there? And um, like, you're not just because they are so, I guess, picky in particular with their favorable habitat. Like you don't worry that they're going to take over or anything like that. Oh, no. So with all the plants that I'm growing, except for Saracenia purpurea, most of them aren't native to the area, but they can't survive the winters. So even if they did spread by seed, they would probably die anyhow. Like. I can grow them outdoors here, but then I've got to cover them with pine straw and then shovel snow over them or keep them like in my unheated garage where it gets cold and down to freezing, but not like it's not exposed to the elements. Um, So I've got to protect the plants here because most of them are from, you know, North Carolina, South Carolina, slightly warmer areas. Um, So I'm not super worried about them like escaping and establishing. 
I also am on top of like the seeds that they produce. So some of the sundews I will let go to seed and try to keep like in the pots so they self seed, but others, you know, I'll snip the flower heads off because I don't want them putting energy into flowers and seeds that I'm not going to use. I'd rather than put that back into the plants. And so, yeah, with they're, they're so localized, they're in the pots. I keep track of how they're reproducing. So I'm not super worried about them escaping. Um, everything that I'm growing, as far as I can tell, you know, I'm buying from commercial breeders that are growing them like you would grow any other plant, like in a greenhouse. And so they're ethically sourced as far as I can tell. They're not taking from wild populations. Uh, I am really interested in getting some of these endangered Saracenia because the place that has the CITES permit for them is like an, it's like a refuge area. And so the money that they're making from selling these endangered plants that they're, they're raising and breeding specifically to sell is going back into conservation. And that's I, good. I, I think that, yeah, it's really cool. And I haven't bought any yet. Cause they're like 50 to $70 a plant. Like they're not cheap. Yeah. Like it's it's going to be like, Oh no, I don't buy a bunch of carnivorous plants with this birthday money. I buy one and I'm not ready to do that and kill it. But I think it's really cool that that's even available. Cause like I said, these things are endangered in the wild sometimes heavily. And you know, it's not great to be like, they're they're We have them in culture, but they're extinct in the wild. They're endangered in the wild, but it's still better than letting them slip into extinction entirely to, you know, have people growing them. It's like, I think of it like some of the tarantula species, the Pisolotheria, I'm blanking on the the common name of them, but they're from from India. And a couple of the species are extinct in the wild, but they persist in the pet trade because they're spectacular. They're blue and they're big and they're, they're easy to rear. And so like, they're not extinct. We could, if we restored the habitat, like get these animals from the pet trade and reintroduce them. You know, I think that that's better than letting them slip totally into extinction. Although, you know, it's it's better to have them in the wild than than not. But at least they're not totally gone. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've learned a lot, and you know, I've looked up plants and seen some really cool pictures that you've posted that are like are just you know fascinating. So like, it's a whole different world that that I didn't really think much about. I guess I knew you know, Venus flytrap and maybe pitcher plant, but I've never seen any besides the little ones that people buy in like gift shops or anything like that. So I've really appreciated all your uh, education and, you know, all the, all the work that you've put into this. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks. It's been a lot of fun. Good hobby other than, you know, just drinking bourbon. (laughs) I mean, I do that too. So (laughs) I'll take a bourbon out at lunch while I look at my plants and combine the two. Take a picture for you just to, just to show you. It's been awesome to go through the world of carnivorous plants here with Mike, Uh, his, his fixation. I don't know. What would you call this? I I mean, fixation would be good. Hobby. Yeah. 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 I'm really happy that you're getting back into it and that it brings you so much joy. And I hope that the people listening at home, that they maybe dip their toes into this world. Don't dip your fingers into the plants themselves and don't set off their hairs or anything. That takes energy for them. But uh, go out and try a plant, uh, grow some things and feed them bugs. It's a cool intersection of the botanical world and the entomological world. So thanks, Mike, for all your hard work putting together the last couple episodes.
Thanks, John. I've, I've really enjoyed putting together the last couple episodes. You know, I knew a lot of this going in, but the excuse to like really do a deep dive uh, has been enjoyable and forced me to read a lot and, and learn a lot more than, than I knew going into it. So it's been a lot of fun. I hope the listeners have enjoyed it as well. I'm sure they have. And it probably let you buy a couple of new books at least, right? I didn't actually buy any news books for this. Oh, what? Oh, okay. I have some Napoleon books to deliver to you, actually. Here's Perfect. Hey, we worked it in. <laughs> uh, we hope you have enjoyed the show. If you have, uh, you can leave a rating and review for us at any of your favorite podcatcher apps. We're on Stitcher. We're on Podcast Addict. We're on Spotify. We are on Apple Podcasts. We're on all those joints. Uh, you have to look for us as arthro-pod. Always include that dash and you'll find us. You can also find our web resources, uh, our show notes. Mike makes beautiful show notes. There'll be lots of cool photos. You can find those at arthro-pod.blogspot.com. And you can hear news about the show on Twitter at arthro underscore pod show. And we're all on Twitter. I'm at Bugman John. I'm at Jody Bugs Me UNL. And I'm at mscavarla36. And we hope that you will join us again here for some buggy goodness in a couple of weeks. It's time for our insect heroes to put away their nets and pheromone traps. Join us next time, same bug time, same bug channel, as the Arthropod gang make the world safe from poor insect podcasts. Until then, keep on bugging. I was going to, I was going to ask you, you know how, like, I think vocalists and stuff, they do like exercises to get like their mouths moving and stuff like that. Like, this is so, well, to me, it's early. I'm an hour before you, but like, I can't even speak in like the words you're saying and all your names. Like, do you do like, I don't. And the audience does not hear all of my mock-ups because I cut all of those out. It's okay, just okay. for you two. You can cut that out too, but I was just wondering, maybe you should have some kind of vocal like exercises each morning before you start like I, rattling man, off I giant. Today is terrible. <laughs> I'm so sorry that you guys have to put up with this, but the audience doesn't.